Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Unbreakable. You're in the emergency room in the Philadelphia City Hospital. I'm ask you some questions. Why are you looking at me like that? There are two reasons why I'm looking at you like this. One, because it seems you aren't the only survivor of this train wreck. And two, you don't have a scratch on you. I know what's going through your mind right now. You're searching for meaning in all of this. No one thing. 131 people died so you could finally understand the destiny for which you were born. Are you ready for the truth? We are back to examine Shyamalan's second significant work. Once again, it's a film you should see and then come back to us so we can discuss it in its entirety. You don't want this one spoiled. If you've for some reason never seen Unbreakable, be good to yourself. Go see Unbreakable. It should be very easy to get hold of on DVD. So, now that everybody's on board, we can finally discuss the story of how a sad man becomes a real-world superhero and in doing so finds his place, regains his family, and discovers... A deadly nemesis. Now, The Sixth Sense was a tough act to follow. This was only a year later. Uh, Everyone had wrongly focused on the twist, rather than the fact that the sublime structure and amazing performances made it a sleeper hit, a breakout success. That's the thing. You can't replicate sleeper hits. It doesn't work like that. It's not a sleeper hit. Then it's your difficult second album. Knight made this whole movie based on uh, what would usually be the first part of a hero's introduction, with his coming out into the world and then clashing with a major threat, the second and third acts omitted uh, to allow for the focus on how reality does not prepare us for the kind of frightening occurrences associated with finding oneself super. Now, while in the sixth sense we are thrown at the end because our assumption is that we're watching a living man, our judgment of Elijah is ultimately called into question by focusing only on things that make him sympathetic for most of the film, and all the horrific actions that he's committed are omitted. Therefore, we are being deceived into sympathy and worry about this fragile, ultimately evil man, which makes him actually more complex. Subsequent viewings are less stacked with amazing detail than The Sixth Sense, but still home to clever use of colour and superb framing, with smooth horizontal camera moves, making this movie more of a sliding puzzle unfolding into the final satisfying new balance for the world. But ultimately, this was always intended to be a live-action graphic novel playing out before our eyes. Now, it's important to note that this is the first podcast that we are doing that we have actually been hired for. The contributor, Nick Grugin, uh, who we did a free one for before because he bought us the uh, the very uh, Blue Yeti mic that we're speaking into right now. We did the thing for him. 
presented us with a list of uh, movies that he loves and would really like to hear us do. And Unbreakable was one of the ones that I thought, you know, that one, because it could tie in with The Sixth Sense, that's fertile ground for our kind of deconstruction. And I've always kind of wanted to talk about it, but it never really, it wasn't going to be one that I was really desperate to do. Sixth Sense, definitely. Unbreakable was up in the air. But Nick secured this one for you, so thank Nick. Took advantage of the uh, the Patreon yeah. request a show level. You you can take advantage of the Patreon request a show level, which is it's uh, it's one hundred and fifty dollars, uh, or um, as Nick and uh, another friend of ours, um, Brendan clubbed together and uh, retained our services for Big Trouble in Little China, which we're doing on Sunday. And uh, this is it's Friday at the moment, so uh, it's uh, it's been a busy week, Nick. <laughs> but um, we are we're packing our schedule with, uh, with with this kind of sort of investigative sort of like we're trying to pull out all the stops for this one because you know it, it would be easy to just go in and go nah this isn't as good as the sixth sense, but we want to make sure we get you your money's worth and get everybody else mm. there, you know, a, a, a good show for you know. Yeah. Rather than just half-arsing this, and there's well, there's less danger of us being complacent about them because these aren't necessarily movies that we've seen over and over and over again. We aren't sitting down thinking, yeah. "Oh, I know this all backwards and inside out." Yeah, if you're paying 150 dollars for something that we consider to be worthwhile paying 150 dollars for, and that's going to make us sit up and take notice, there's no point paying us 150 dollars to do a complete shit show of a movie like, say, I don't know, the fourth Resident Evil, which I saw today, and Deal. Yep. <laughs> or something that we can't stand, like Sex the fourth the Resident City Evil. <laughs> oh, we're still going to do Sex in the City too. You can't I get know, out of it. No, but I would. Fe- I would really not charge somebody one hundred and fifty dollars to listen to. Oh this yeah. Spit for fifteen minutes. I think fifteen minutes. You're having a laugh. Hour and a half. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, so unbreakable. Now. Uh, I don't know whether this was intentional, but did you notice that Elijah was born at the beginning of the Silver Age? It was 1961. Ah, no, I did not notice. It's it's, it's odd because um, the comprehension of comic history is fleeting throughout this movie. If you're, like, if you're really into comics, you'll watch this and go, yeah, okay, they've sort of got an idea on this one. I think it's partly because they've tried very deliberately not to directly replicate. One of the things that I noticed was the points on which there is focus on the comic uh, artwork and paraphernalia it's not real, most of it. There is one notable exception that I picked up on. I'm pretty sure you would have spotted more. Mm-hmm. Um, in the gallery towards the end, there are uh, covers on the wall of Thor, uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Daredevil. Are we not counting the abundance of Marvel and DC on show in the comic shop? That's background. That's what I mean. The ones that are specifically focused on mm-hmm. um, the first comic book that Elijah's given is Active Comics which I'm assuming is a reference to Action, action Comics, comics. Um, and The Sentry which is the The Sentryman The Sentryman is that real? No Right so that the one that he picks up Of course up it's not real like a cursory understanding of comic books and you'll be able to identify these, uh, these mock-ups that they put together incredibly lacking in detail 
Um, and th- this is the thing that bug- bugged me because, and it bugged me back in the day, and it bugs me now. Spider-Man, Superman exist in this world. Elijah makes a reference to Kryptonite. There's Spider-Man and X-Men comics in in the comic shop. This is a world where Marvel and DC are still ruling the roost and their focus is only on these off-brand comics that Mm. no one's ever heard of. So basically there are two reasons why you would do that, why Mm -hmm. you would use um, made-up comics to illustrate your very specific points. Notably, they do the same thing in Hancock when uh, um, Michael Bluth gives um, uh, Hancock a whole bunch of comics and says, you know, what What do you think about these images? And Hancock sort of bleh at them. Um, and uh, it's none of them look like real comics, certainly nothing that you would actually read even as a small child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so there's two things that would make you... Um, choose that rather than actually looking at real comics which have a wealth of, mm. of myth to explore and there are many that would have it would have illustrated the points in this film perfectly adequately as say kevin smith was very wont to do in the late 90s just constantly throwing references left and right exactly which is probably why he got hooked up with the whole superman returns gig very possibly I say probably it was it was <laughs> of course it was you know in those days you say comics you think kevin smith yeah. um but either a it's going to cost you money mm-hmm. to use them to reference Superman. And you will know to, to specifically have copies there to talk about in depth. Really? Do you think that but they that actually doesn't... they paid money when they in the Lost Boys when um uh Corey Haim sort of holds up the uh, Superman and goes, This yeah. is the wrong order, this needs to be and here because they haven't discovered red kryptonite yet. Kevin Smith... That, by the way, felt really authentic. Yeah, absolutely. And Kevin Smith couldn't afford that shit. No. <laughs> so I don't yeah. think it's Okay, the so money. it's not that one. So it's, I don't think it's the money. So the other possibility is that they this is Disney, by the way. Touchstone Pictures. They got the cash. Yeah. Even well, in 2000. Well, no, there's a difference between not having the cash. They're riding high on the renaissance of there the 90s. There is a difference between not having the cash and, and not wanting to, to spend, spend the cash. cash. Ultimately... You're already paying out for Sam Jackson and Bruce Willis. If Kevin Smith gets sued, it's not... He's basically going to turn up and go, look at me. Really, what do you think you can get out of this? Budget was $75 um, million. It only made 248 Interesting. Which is not... Is that the magic four? I, I'm, I, I'm no mathematician, but uh, that's 125... It's, it's very close. Okay. They're just shy of the magic four. Right, okay. Um, 250. So, yeah, so if it's not the money, the only other possibility that I can think of, if you can think of another, then obviously please furnish me with it, um, but is that they... Are trying to address. For perspective, folks, uh, $672 million was the six cents. And I'll tell you for why. Because the six cents is absolutely intoxicating. And this has a cold edge to it that people found off putting. That's one of the reasons why I've always been much more wrapped up in the sixth sense. The other possibility is that they wanted to approach comic books as a a broad idea, a broad theme, and they were concerned that if they actually used existing comics as specific references, it would be too specific. Um, now, the the problem that I have with that is that 
I mean, we know how much depth and and um, and room for analysis work there is in existing comics. There oh, yeah. have been plenty for them to work with. We've they based our show had... on it most. Absolutely, most episodes. they certainly wouldn't have had to stick with any individual publisher. They mm. could have, you know, gone gone the whole spectrum. That's the thing. If you straddle both Marvel and DC, you do what very other, very few other movies manage to do. Yeah, or even bring in a few independents. If this was the time to, to talk about the mythology yeah. of Superman and Batman. Do you think that? Tarantino had to pay that much for Bill to give his speech on Superman. His speech on Superman should have been something that Elijah gave in this. Mm. Yeah. Because that is a twisted version of the... the it's, it's one perspective on Superman, mm. and it's not one I agree with, which is that Clark Kent is his critique on humanity. He sees humanity as weak and kind of pathetic, which, actually, if you really know Clark Kent... He's a very strong guy. He actually is a stand-up, good-hearted man. Absolutely. Also, it's worth bearing in mind that he didn't invent the persona of Clark Kent. That's how he grew up. His parents gave him yeah. that name. But, like I said, this this seems like something that Elijah would talk about. And if that sort of thing was threaded through Unbreakable, I think this would be a much more rewatchable film for me. If, and this is the big if... Shyamalan actually knew his shit and regarding comics, and is that's my point. why. Yes, because he doesn't enough. know his shit. He doesn't know he enough. He knows a little bit to be able to talk about the specific. He's watched people posturing and talking about the oh the ramifications and the mythology and stuff but like that. But he doesn't really know it. He's got Sam Jackson right there, who clearly knows this stuff incredibly a, well. The point where Elijah turns up and Bruce Willis is, t- is called aside, like. I just combined the character name and the actor. Okay, David. It's called Out of His Job, and honestly, I expected Elijah to go, You think you're the only superhero in the world? (laughs) (laughs) I'm putting together a team. Nick Fury yet. Not yet. (coughs) I have to shave this stupid-ass hair off. He wasn't even the the comic book Nick Fury yet. No, this was, I think, one year before The Ultimates. Let me double-check that. Okay. But uh, um, but just to continue with my point, it, it's it's possible that um, Shyamalan was taking the approach that he personally did not know enough about specific comics to be able to talk intelligently about them in the script and convince an audience who undoubtedly would know a lot about them. Bingo. And it would smack of in- inauthenticity immediately. Indeed. March and 2002 was the ultimates when Samuel L. Jackson became Nick Fury before our eyes on the printed page. And also broad appeal. If he'd focused on specific individual comics, it would have come off too much, too much like a niche, geeky type movie that wouldn't be promotable. Because this was back before they realised well, no, that it all became mainstream. You're onto something there. This is instrumental in their realising. Speaking about comics in this broad kind of navel-gazing kind of mythological way, in a sort of very sort of like ticking all the boxes, making sure that you sound very intelligent without ever having to answer any pressing questions from someone saying, do you actually know what you're talking about? Mm. Allowed adults who have no interest in comics to go, oh, Maybe it planted a seed. It was at the just correct time. Because what had happened before this? Blade. And then the first X-Men movie. And then this, the X-Men was the summertime in 2000. And then 2000, November, Unbreakable comes along. And just the right time, people are going, hmm, comic books not just for kids, you say? 
And then Samuel L. Jackson, incredibly respectable actor, says, damn right they're not just for kids, and explains why in extremely pernicious terms. Um, but because he's an objectionable character, you're allowed to have this uh, somewhat overly defensive mouthpiece, you know, go through all of these sort of, uh, I suppose, the posturing on why comics are so important. It's posturing I agree with, uh, but it needs to be, uh, it can be couched in a number of different terms and in a number of different ways, some of them extremely pretentious, some of them more relatable. DC, Marvel, and the cinema. I'm not going to let it go. I am not going to let go. Like if you actually watch the uh, uh, comic books thing um, on the extras of this, you've got a 2000 mini documentary uh, where people like Frank Miller are being interviewed about uh, the uh, ascendry from comic, of comic books from, you know, tools for young boys to uh, uh, as empowerment fantasy to, and how they relate to the world. Um, to you know, being these sort of mythological windows to the twentieth century, and um, one uh, female comic book uh, creator was um, saying how that Frank Miller's approach of making this like Frank Miller's approach of hating superheroes and actually trying to bring them down and uh, deliver um, dark, ugly. Uh, grimy crime thrillers with a superhero slant and uh, how, you know, certain other people could sort of take those and if they don't have something, you know, if they don't have something very special, it can end up being really just depressing because kids don't have heroes anymore. And At the time when she was talking in 2000, Marvel were on the rocks. They were almost bankrupt at this point. In fact, they could have done with a fairly sizable handout from Disney for this film. You know, they'd have said yes. DC also weren't doing too fantastically. It took the age of the superhero, ushered in by Spider-Man only two years after this, less than two years, year and a half. It was the summer of 02. Uh, to, and unfortunately, sadly, the, uh, the destruction of the Twin Towers to require the superhero in America specifically. Mm. The world suddenly becomes extremely dark. Mm. You want your uh, myths to reflect hope and positivity. Absolutely. And so now, 16 years later, you've got this um, two different approaches. You know, you've got the the, the, the heroes are us and the, the, the brightness and the hope and the possibility, yet all this complexity and the amount of times I've seen Marvel films just sort of like waved away with oh they're just people you know somebody said I like DC films because I don't want to see perfect people and it's like if you're watching Tony Stark and consider him a perfect person you're watching Tony Stark wrong that is a deeply flawed individual Steve Rogers in uh, they're talking about how everyone in, uh, in Civil War is perfect they're far from perfect but the other slant being that everyone's fucked, which is what the DC angle is. That nobody's really a hero. That they're, you know, oh, do everything, Clark, or do nothing. You don't know them anything. It's all fucked anyway, is basically what Mark Kent may as well say at that point. But yeah, if you keep just pushing this one button, and that's what Suicide Squad should have been, by the way. That dark... You know, no one can really be a hero. There is total validity in that being an aspect of the superhero universe. Totally. But not the fucking be-all, end-all of your world. If Superman is a dark, grey, miserable shit, 
I don't want to know that world. I don't want to know that DC universe. And few other people do either. Anyway. It's a prescient uh, little documentary and totally worth seeing because the woman's point is that you can't make everything this dark and this craven and this hopeless because you your capes disappear after that point because they're soaked in blood. I will point out, by the way, Alan Moore, by refusing to do interviews on this kind of thing, you are letting Frank Miller be the voice for your generation. Oh, he'll interview at the drop of a hat. Frank Miller will talk for anyone. It's get him to (laughs) shut up, that's the problem. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Like I said, Elijah was born at the uh, beginning of the Silver Age, which seems significant to me, may have been entirely coincidental. But the actual scene, I've, you know... Whether Shyamalan knows that as much about comic books and comic book history as he does about Avatar The Last Airbender, which is about the same. Uh, you know, I've seen Avatar. I watch it with my kids all the time. That's the one with the kid called Ben who has like 10 different aliens, isn't it? Um, the actual scene is masterfully done. And I have to praise Shyamalan again for this film. He uses a lightness of touch the whole way through. There's tension throughout. Um, it's it's expertly done, and it's the work of a very steady filmmaker who really needed to carry on on this path. And signs as well. I will you know tip my hat to. There are like the fact that the whole film rests on contrivances is a problem for a lot of people. Um, I've had you know people saying, oh, I, I do like Sixth Sense and Unbreakable, but Signs is where it's at. And I've had other people say, you know, Signs is one of the only movies that legitimately gets me furious. So he's a divisive filmmaker. If nothing else. Maybe his problem is also that he writes all of his films in, in, in that capacity, that, that maybe... Maybe the correct path after this, because he was not able to hold on to his... Um, steady hand in uh, the writing was to just pull back, carry on being a director, but allow someone else to actually start writing these things, because his the the the, the funereal air to his characters was already beginning to show, mm. and it maintained with signs, and then went further on with the village and Lady in the Water and mm. the happening. I suspect part of the problem is the lack of anyone else's creative input. And I don't mean to dismiss the people that he has working on music and um, set design and uh, cinematography and all the rest of it. But ultimately, when he is the creator of the narrative from start to finish and nobody really gets a great deal of input, um, flaws get missed because it is, it's hard to pick up gaping holes in your own work. You Look, need another pair of eyes. I, I've done, I've, without even thinking about it, I have basically nailed the problem. Looking at his filmography, you go to writer, it's yes across the board. A couple of no's for executive producers, a couple of no's for director Stuart Little and Devil. A uh, couple of no's for actor, and a lot more no's in recent times. He's not sticking himself in his films uh, apparently he was a firebender in Earth Prison Camp uncredited in The Last Airbender but uh, but yeah no across the board he's written and has gone down and down and down and down and down here is what I would suggest for your next film M. Night get someone else to write it you do someone else's script it might you never know you might get better I believe you can do better again this work 
in the sixth sense, in Unbreakable, in Signs, in the village, even in Lady in the Water, is steady-handed with enough of an eye for what a good shot can be, that that can be brought back with the right script. The funereal air in his... Well, that he has auteured throughout his film series... uh, does work in this second film as well. It's not actually a second, it's his fourth, but it feels like his second in, in, in the actual known works. Um, his, I believe I said at the beginning it was his second significant film, his second important film that people credited him for. Um, but it works in this context because what we're mourning here is the death of a relationship or at least the moribundity of a uh, long-standing marriage and so everyone's moving around. Like, well, also, it's coupled with the fact that there's a horrific train crash at the beginning and a hell of a lot of people die, hundreds of people, and it's impossible not to move around the house quietly talking under a very gloomy cloud mm. but this, under those circumstances. There's loss and death in a lot of his films. There's, yeah. I mean, obviously, um, The Sixth Sense is absolutely riven with it yeah. um, but there's that same tone in Signs there's that same tone in Lady in the Water it's it's something that he seems dead to wife, consider dead wife dead wife in both of those yeah it's something that he seems to consider a, a, a basic background to his starting points I think he just assumes everyone has pain so if we can sort of put a direct pain there it'll mm. it'll, it'll give them some some tension something to to work with but yeah like I say it, it it functions and serves here. Now, curiously, the end of the uh, Sixth Sense, uh, I said that the film would work perfectly if he just came home to his wife and said, and she said, I want to just try and start again. And that's exactly how this film starts. It's almost like an unofficial sequel to The Sixth Sense where Malcolm who has also been moonlighting ah, as a security <laughs> guard, um, comes home to his wife after seeing off Cole, and she says, I want to try again. And then we carry on from there for this whole new scenario. Um, and I was, you know, well, when I realised that, I was trying to think of, is there a way that this film could possibly then lead on to science? <laughs> But it falls down there because Mel Gibson has never been a superhero. Although technically pastors are seen as superheroes to some people. Question mark. <laughs> um, the What you said about uh, Elijah being born at the beginning of the Silver Age. Yeah. I think one very specific thing that is significant about that, if nothing else was intentional, is that that means that his heroes are Golden Age heroes. And the first comic book that he gets is reminiscent of... Yeah, it's reminiscent of the Golden Age because it looks like M. Night doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. He was being given a comic in 1974 when uh, Spider-Man was facing the Punisher and the Jackal Mm. and uh, it looks like something out of the fucking 1930s. I don't think M. Night knows what kind of comic... Like, whether that was supposed to be a comic from a specific era, whether that was supposed to... Like, because she couldn't... There's no fucking way that a woman in 1970s Harlem is going to find a fucking Golden Age comic and be able to pick it up for the amount she's got. She could a, a brand new comic but at that stage already golden age comics were becoming difficult to get hold of she couldn't get hold of that mm. ergo 
we are being presented with a Silver Age hero engaging in what's becoming rapidly Bronze Age situations, because that's what the 70s and 80s brought about. Drugs, Harlem, Luke Cage, all of the stuff that the Defenders are now dealing with. Mm. Uh, and uh, this Green Arrow and Green Lantern on the road and fucking Roy on drugs. That's Bronze Age problems with Silver Age characters presented in a Golden Age style because there was almost no background detail at all. And we're being being basically presented... Like, uh, when Mr. Glass is looking at that original artwork with that imbecile going to buy it for his four-year-old, that's never happened ever. His mother said later the eyes are slightly bigger, which means he has a different perspective on the world. Distorted perspective. Distorted perspective on the world. You could say that about Disney princesses or any anime female. But yeah, that original art we're looking at, it, it's Sabretooth versus Superman, which doesn't make any kind of sense straight off there. In fact, if anything, that looked like um, some to, for their inspiration, the, the, the knockoff artist they got to, to put up these mock-up comics had read the Amalgam comics of Marvel and DC squashed together after Marvel versus DC, uh, like, about as 90s as it can get. They crammed together Batman and Wolverine. That's exactly what I was thinking of. And Dark Claw. And his villain was the hyena, who was basically Joker smushed into Sabretooth. And that's who this Jaguar looks like. And he's fighting Superman, a genteel hero in a cape. It doesn't make any sense. But... That's just the comic book historian in me speaking. But regardless, the actual, the beginning 60s segment means that basically Elijah's growing up in a time of supreme turmoil during the civil rights movement. And uh, that, you know, his heroes then become the people who can... Uh, well, for a start, most of his heroes are dying around him. You know, he's like, oh, well, we'll think about Martin Luther. Oh, he's dead. Oh, we'll think about Huey Newton. Oh. And just the idea of being able to hold on to any hero at that stage in the 70s. That's why Luke Cage was such a big deal. Mm. And we'll talk about that when we do Luke Cage coming soon. Stay tuned, folks. I don't, we, we still haven't gone back to Daredevil. We, uh, we, when did we leave off? Like, we were about six, uh, episode seven episodes six in. Seven, I think it was, yeah. we'd seen three episodes in a row where he had protracted fights in the dark mm. against ninjas. That was it. No, the thing that got us was we watched an episode where we suddenly realised that about 30 minutes had passed and we hadn't actually seen anything. <laughs> and we turned it off, not in a kind of disgusted, we'll never come back to this, but we'll, let's just give this a rest because it's really doing my head in. And then never came back to it because when do you want to have your head done in? Anyway, we will I we will have to go back to Daredevil and then we'll get into Luke Cage and great. <clears throat> but like I said, that Luke Cage was a hero who was out to save the streets from the pimps and the chuds mm. and you know that that was a big deal from when Elijah would have been a teenager. But the actual the as I said earlier, that the scene with the Doctor at the beginning and his the, his performance is superb. It's just the, the work of an incredibly confident young filmmaker, you know, showing a poise that defies his years. Mm. And then moving on from that, the young uh, Elijah as a teenager being lured out to the bench by his mother. It's a wonderful scene. Mm. And just those scenes cement for us 
uh, an investment in the character. That's the masterstroke of this film for the first time viewers. That after we've seen that happen, we want Elijah to succeed. And that even though he seems angry at this buffoonish man, we're with him on that one. We're like, yeah, you're disrespecting comics. You give it to your four year old. There's something very. Jeb. There's something What's very... this Jeb ever done for us? <laughs> There's something very significant about the way Elijah is introduced in those two scenes as well. Um, you mainly see him in reflection. Mm-hmm. Um, in the scene where he's born, there's that everything takes place in that big mirror. There's a brief moment where it pans back and you see him in the doctor's arms, mm-hmm. but it's mostly him in the mirror. Um, and then when he's a teenager, you see him reflected in the TV. It's not until his mother takes him over to the window mm-hmm. um, and refocuses his attention outside um, that he you actually get to see him. And I think that's twofold. One, it's dropping a hint about him being the dark reflection of David. Um, and two, it's kind of a warning about the nature of how he sees himself. He has spent way too much time in his life on self-reflection. Now, in the vast majority of cases, I would never say that more self-reflection is a bad thing. But he has focused in on who am I, what's my place in the world, why don't I appear to have a place in the Rather world? Rather than relating to the world Exactly, directly. without that relation. Or what little of the world could actually come, because that's the thing, it would have to come to him. There's so much danger in journeying out into it. Yeah, Just absolutely. the stairs it's, are it's terrifying. It's hardly surprising Again, this is why we himself in that situation. This is why we sympathise with him. We, we, we think this... Just, you know, when, when the stairs stretch away from him at that one point, we're like, oh my God. Mm. Like, we see all his vulnerabilities. You can't not sympathise with him. There need to be more films which basically put us in the shoes of somebody disabled, somebody for whom life is a challenge in some respect and that there are dangers that we take for granted. Mm. And they, they do tend to be, um, they tend to be quite um, low budget yeah. fair. Oscar fair usually. Mm. For... Possibly. Um, but the, uh, specifically the but that's the thing, bring that sort of stuff into the public for by weaving it into our sci-fi. That's how you get people to really embrace it. It's fantastic making these artsy films where someone paints with their left foot, mm. um, but you're not going to get the kids into it. Inspiration porn, I have seen it referred to as. Basically, mm. if somebody disabled is in a movie, it's all about how their disability was overcome and that, and it's never just an everyday part of who they are and how they get on with life. Um, or very rarely, not never. In the case of friggin' Daredevil in the TV show, he's, he's so super powerful, he could see better than me! <laughs> Um, but I, the, I can see a small wall down there with sonar or something, <laughs> so I won't trip. That's more than we got. Um, but uh, but yeah, because Elijah's focus is so intently on who he is and not on making any kind of connection with other people, that's what makes him end up becoming a villain because he is so isolated. And he has to reach out with these massive acts of destruction in order to try and find a point of connection. Now, that is about the best definition of a supervillain I've ever seen. Yeah. The first words spoken to David, do you remember what they were? It's, are you alone on the train? Yes. Yes, yes, he is. Yeah. 
that honestly i it's it's a great line and it's a great setup but in that moment it felt really wrong that's that's not how you'd phrase that is anyone sitting here <laughs> makes more sense but you know you can sort of get away with that kind of dialogue if everybody's serious about it mm. and no one's talking about the scrunt or the naff. Well, indeed. But that's that's the thing. This emulates uh, graphic novels so well mm. in terms of the dialogue is stilted because you can't... It's really difficult to show people interrupting each other and, and using colloquialisms that overlap and things like that in speech bubbles. It's hard to do. I don't know. Bendis does it really well. Here's how you do it. Speech bubble, another speech bubble interlacing it, another I speech bubble, another speech bubble. Bendis... Bendis, 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 Bendis. I didn't say it's impossible. I Love said me it's some Bendis. Hard to do. Um, Did I recommend Bendis yet? <laughs> <laughs> but like you said, it's it's another aspect of that framing the fact that you've got these, you know, the scenes appear in blocks. He's using that two shot again. Remember what I said in um, mm-hmm. uh, with uh, the Sixth Sense, where you they split the screen. In this particular scene, you don't see David and Kelly in the shot together. It's always the camera angles one way through the seats, mm. and you see her and then the other way and you see him there is no actual connection going on between them mm. it's it's fake it's not real but it gives you more of that sense of it looking like a comic because everything's in grids and squares and mm. blocks horizontal sliding the um this is the scene on the train was the most hitchcocky that i think uh Shyamalan's ever gotten it's um there's a tension to what would otherwise be an incredibly ordinary scene of a, a sad man trying to pick up a girl and all like, not even like he's not even really trying he's, he's just he just seems to be like I haven't really spoken to a girl I wonder if I can oh no overshot but he's not even really a sad man at this point and this is the thing like you said Elijah is introduced in a very sympathetic way David is introduced in a way that makes us think you're a bit of a creep, really, aren't you? The first thing he does is take off his wedding ring so that this pretty girl who sits down won't know he's married. Phew. That is a creep thing to do. Yep. You are not supposed to immediately empathise with David. Yeah. The uh, the crash, when it actually happens, um, the cheapest train crash in all of uh, <laughs> cinema history, they just, you know, they say it, it has happened. And, uh, no, no, the one in Ant-Man. <laughs> no, because they had to actually spend a couple of, <laughs> a couple 20, of quid 30 on a quid on a Thomas engine. Tank Engine. And you know, that train set ain't cheap. <laughs> and then they had to pay for that enormous train. <laughs> that's a separate crash, okay. but yeah. But yeah, no. Um, but that's not a complaint. I'm, it's actually refreshing to watch a superhero movie where a train crash is clearly a huge contributing factor to the story, but you never see the train crash. Mm. It's so good to not see another train crash. And I, I love Super 8, but um, <laughs> you can see one too many train crashes. Although, do you know what they did do? They metaphorically destroyed New York. Explain. David is due to move to New York to get a new job to get away from his family or to move away from his family. And by the end of the movie, all of that has been thoroughly kicked out of the window. It's become somewhat traditional in oh, superhero movies to destroy New York, or at least a New York They eschew New parallel. York. Yes, indeed. Okay, fair enough. Well, that's the, the whole thing could take place in Philadelphia. Uh, I, I, M. Night Shyamalan was clearly born and raised in Philadelphia. On a playground was where he spent most of his days. <laughs> Do you know what? There's the same 
Uh, it cuts to Elijah in 1974 and it says West Philadelphia and my brain was off and oh, it just God. played the entire theme tune. So, I mean, almost all of Shyamalan's films take place in Philadelphia. I think We Hate Movies joke that, that you know, when you find out at the end of After Earth that they were running around the ruins of Philadelphia. That, what a twist! That'd be a good twist. <laughs> Not word, yeah. Only for residents of Philly who just wanted to, once again, air punch for their uh, home. But, um, no, it's... Uh, there's no train crash and then when I was looking at um, uh, David in the hospital being questioned by the doctor I was thinking surely he'd be spattered with blood from the uh, other people who were horribly killed and maimed around him you know just this sort of ghoulish kind of physics intruding Uh, and then the person who is in the front of the frame um, out of focus begins to hemorrhage and uh, the the blood begins to seep in. And I thought, no, 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 he was absolutely right. Don't cover, don't taint David's outfit with blood. I mean, I was thinking that it might be kind of like, where are you wounded, sir? Nowhere, this is someone else's blood. In fact, I don't have any wounds at all. That's a crass way of getting that across. Not having him spattered with blood, having somebody else bleeding out is absolutely the steady-handed way of doing it in the same way as not showing the crash mm. it's they he doesn't overblow it and it's and most of this film in pretty pretty much like 95 percent of it he has got a steady hand mm. he never goes over the top and he uses relative to say the happening which is 95 percent over the top well, it, you start with Mark Wahlberg. It's never going to be good. But the... Bro, there's something happening, bro. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, should all, we should do the happening just so that I can rail on that guy again. If you want. I'm not giving you 150 bucks for it. It's the wrong um, Wahlberg. <laughs> the... Um, he, he does utilise the unrealism... <laughs> Of certain scenarios, in order to emphasise the uh, the nature of the story he's trying to tell here, and this is another reason why I think it works here, because it's a comic book tone, than and then doesn't work in other movies that are trying to be in other movies of his that are trying to be more realistic. One thing that struck me about this scene in the ER was that it seemed totally unrealistic because. In the aftermath of a huge accident... They'd be running around screaming be, and panicking. Exactly. There would be people everywhere. And I know... People outside shouting as well. Exactly. And I know they very crying. specifically yeah. say, you and this guy are the only two people... So there's no point shouting and running alive. around and doing stuff now. They'd still end up in the hospital. You'd still have people being brought in and then they <clears> get there and they go, actually, no, this one's dead. <laughs> At the end, the uh, newspaper says, hero, in inverted commas, saves girls... Newspapers don't do that. They uh, they don't they they would newspapers make declamatory statements. They would say, "Hero saves two girls. It sells more papers." Mm. This, however, is set in the real world, which basically means the real world as seen through the eyes of M. Night Shyamalan. Yeah, but the the quietness of the hospital and the way that David walks out through the crowds lends him a, a, a almost a biblical hero. Air. <sighs> Um, there's there's something slightly Jesus-like about the way people kind of, you know, everybody's staring at him as he walks through because he's like the only person who survived. Uh, I mean, I don't know. <clears throat> it seemed a little bit off how quickly the newspapers lost interest in that. Yeah. Um, maybe it would have felt a bit more real if he'd been pursued a little bit more and people other than Elijah had been a bit more interested in in why he'd managed to survive. But again, there's a lot of, of visual storytelling in that 
scene, specifically in the way that he's greeted by Joseph and Audrey, um, because there it's it's all there's so few words exchanged. In fact, I hardly think there's any, um, and yet you get their entire story in those few frames. You get the way you know he's he's just emerged from this train wreck, the only survivor. Audrey barely touches him. Yeah, it uh, Joseph has to actively put their hands together and they let go again almost straight away. It tells you almost everything you need to know about that scenario. You almost don't need the scene afterwards where he goes upstairs and she's in the spare room. Robin White Penn is uh, unable to hide her beauty and strength under this crumpled, um, sad, again, um, tired woman. She, I mean, it, it seems like, you know, to prepare for the role, she just denied herself a decent night's sleep five, six days in a row before she started shooting and then just didn't sleep properly throughout. Mm. Um, she seems like someone that has gone through... It's hard not to imagine David and her fighting hard and being just genuinely unpleasant to each other. But... Um, <laughs> Or, or it could just have been very cold. Yeah, see, I, the feeling that I get about it is... Basically, the thing you have to remember about David is he's been living a lie mm-hmm. for decades. Um, he's been living the life of somebody who was injured and had to give up on a career when, in actual fact, none of that happened. Mm. Now, that kind of repression and keeping those things inside takes a lot of energy. Mm. You don't have a lot left to fight with somebody. You don't have a lot left to love somebody either, and that may be ultimately where the problems lie. So it's more of a cold pulling away. Yeah, that mm. that's very much the feeling that I get about how this, this family breakup has happened. And ultimately, with regards to um, her being uh, beautiful and strong and not being able to hide that, being beautiful and strong and tired and crumpled and, you know, at a loss what to do next are not mutually exclusive qualities. And I I think it's it's the way they all combine in how she portrays Audrey is what sells that, the the tragedy of whatever it was that they've lost. Because you almost get that feeling when she she comes up and says... Chloe Savigny could have done that and just got the latter stuff. Yeah, indeed. But when she comes up and says um, later on in the film that that she wants them to to go back to what they had... That seems really mean about Chloe Savigny, but she's just not in the same league of acting as Robin Wright. Um, It's almost like neither of them really know what that is. And when they they go on the date together and they're trying to sort of explore each other, it almost seems like there's there's something that they they know is missing, but neither of them can put their finger on it. And it's it's very similar to that feeling that David seems to have throughout the film of of not knowing what he's supposed to do. What is he meant to be doing with these gifts that he has? Mm. What are they meant to be doing with their relationship? That's as much a thing. And that those are two of the cornerstones of what makes us who we are as people. Who do we have relationships with? How do we have those relationships? And what are we doing with our lives? What what purpose are we acting out? It's an odd series of powers as well. It's um, it's the kind of uh, it seems like powers that were very specifically given to him by some otherworldly force that like. They haven't developed naturally. He's basically invincible, has unbreakable skin, appears to be 
extremely strong. I think he, he lifts like 300 pounds. 350. And 50 pounds in the end, which is a lot. He's not like <laughs> Hulk strong, but he's extremely strong. Um, but he appears to have like a guilt touch, like the bad touch. He can... He's Ghost Rider. When he... T- well... Pretty much. When he touches you, um, he can find out what you are incredibly guilty about and when he makes contact. Um, now, what you noticed, and one thing that Nick, who sponsored this show, uh, was sad about, was seeing that uh, during the scene where he wanders around um, Philly's station touching people and finding out the, the, the evil shit they've done, um, and if you're going to combine it with that scene at the um, sports ball arena, we've got a guy with a hidden weapon who might have done something terrible and is prevented from doing so. Uh, we've got what? What was M Knight's uh, character? He was drug dealing. He picked up a bundle of um, of drugs, pot or something like that, from the toilets and stuffed it in his pocket. But by the time I think by the time David got to him, he'd got rid of it. Basically, I think that's basically all that was written in the script. Uh, a drug dealer picks up a bundle of drugs. I could play this guy, <laughs> a handsome drug dealer. Um, um, and uh, there's also like a woman who's clearly been beating her child. He's like, I'll just leave that one. You want to talk about protection? Yeah. That, well, that's see, the that's, fucking loose end. Okay, can thing. I get to the end of this thought? Yes, of course. Because you noted that basically the thing that Nick was sad about is that he, obviously the jewel thief wanders off, uh, you know, w- without any repercussions. There's an obvious rapist who, you know, we're, we're shown a very uncomfortable scene of a, a woman passed out at a party. And um, he's like, right, I'm going to get my fuck on. And David lets him get away. Now, the thing you pointed out was... He he lets him get away, but specifically the next person who comes along, his crime is still in progress. Yes, he sees that he's murdered the um, the husband of that family... Um, But the point is that there are people there who are still alive. There are people there who still need protecting. It sounds horrendous. And this is a kind of a dark side of this skill that David has, this developed instinct, is that he then has to choose what he deals with and what he doesn't. Because ultimately, he's still only one man. He cannot take on the world. And there are so many people out there who have done bad things. But... He's a protector. He is there to prevent further harm and save life. He is not a punisher. There would be no point, at least in the way he's been set up and the particular skill set that he's been given and specifically the drive and the impulse that he seems to feel. And Elijah points this out. He has chosen a field that puts him in the position of protector. But he is not going after people who are guilty of bad things and meeting out discipline. Um, and yes, with the, the kid who is with the mother who's, who's obviously hit him, David doesn't see anything to suggest that that is anything other than a one-off incident. 
We don't know that, that that's a, a regular occurrence. We don't know that that child needs protection for the future. Because this lacks that important second half of, what, of the uh, origin story, he yeah. doesn't get to pursue something which ends up being more complex than... Exactly. That's where we would potentially see the development of this skill and mm. David starting to realise that there are holes in it, that it can guide him down a wrong path. Which makes his place ill-defined if you actually know yeah. modern superheroes. What happens if he starts picking up on people who are guilty about things they haven't done yet? What mm. do you do? That Do you then punish people for things they haven't done? That's just because they had a bad thought? That's pre-crime. Now we're in Minority Report and Civil War too. Exactly. But but very specifically, like I said, I think the reason that the, the emphasis was on him going after that last guy is because there were people there who needed to be saved. And it's his instinct. His instinct could have been, I must go and avenge them. Swear to me! And uh, I think I mentioned this one before, but Ghost Rider, uh, I was reading a, a comic from that 1992 crossover with uh, X-Men, and he comes in while a woman is being chased by a demon and pretty much stands there while the demon kills the woman and then avenges her. Mm. It's like, dude, just... Use your penance stare prior to that. You've got an enchanted chain. Maybe he's not allowed to, but this is the thing. Different superheroes for different eventualities. It's a demon, and obviously a demon. He's from the Assassin's Guild. He's killed fucking thousands of people already. Mm. Swear to me, I'm going to use my penance stare. This is where Captain America's awesome. He's a little bit more flexible. Yeah. But anyway. Oh my, um, is he flexible? He did <laughs> not skip it. leg day. <laughs> but um, yeah, so so the the role that that David has is specifically a protective one, and that and preventative ability, as well. Yeah, like the, preventative. Um, the, this is why the Avengers. This is why the Avengers have the worst name in comic books. They should not be. Build as Avengers. No. There was almost no goddamn reason why they, the, in the Avengers, they had to work out a scene that they were going to, because we damn sure we're going to avenge it. They're not about avenging the Earth. They're about preventing the Chitauri or, or Thanos or who the fuck ever from leaving the Earth unlivable for humans. Mm. Yeah, but um, they're the preventers, the protectors, or if you will, and you're a Marvel fan, the defenders. <laughs> the I um, think there's a protectors as well. This Marvel. this instinct skill that that David has to work out if people have done a bad thing. Um, you said you he seemed to have a very weird combination of powers that had been picked specifically for this purpose. Mm-hmm. He really reminds me of Logan. Take away the claws, mm-hmm. take away the really, really resentful attitude um, and take away the healing factor because you never really get to see that in action. But ultimately, it's... Take away the hairiness. And the shortness and the Canadianness, and you don't really have a great deal of Wolverine left, but... He's grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> but no, my, my point being that he is, he is incredibly resilient. He doesn't get ill. He doesn't, um, he doesn't, you know, his bones don't damage um, and he has incredibly well-developed instincts. And there has been an incident where Wolverine drowned, hasn't there? Or at least came very close to it? Or am I imagining that? Let's just say yes, but it's not his weakness. No, it's not specifically his weakness. But that's kind of who he reminded me of. See, I like the, the heroes... Amnesia. that was it. No, 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 Spe- sorry. Specifically, the terrible thing that happened to him when he was a child, Mm -hmm. his mind has healed over that. So his mind and his recollection is unreliable. Mm. 
Okay. Yeah. I like heroes whose weaknesses are not straightforward, literal, glowing green rocks or water, which, by the way, M. Knight, covers two-thirds of the planet. Um, also, a lot of people are vulnerable to drowning. Oh, my God. Conspiracy nuts who are putting together a whole M. Knight universe. The aliens in signs are all... Clones <laughs> of David. Say superheroes on their own planet. Oh no! Who would have thought that a small amount of water would land on me? What a twist! Well, no the the heroes that I like are ones whose weaknesses are a bit less like you know physical. straightforward physical objects or, or materials. It's mm. uh, you know Steve's weakness is that he is incredibly stubbornly fixated on doing what he perceives as the right thing and will push it so far that he might end up doing the wrong thing. Mm. Tony's weakness is that he is... Okay. Uh, where do I start? Um, <laughs> uh, he, he is addicted to substances. He is addicted to himself. He is um, arrogant and um, at, at times superficial. Uh, he is similarly stubborn but will keep pushing and pushing for what he sees as the the greater good. Mm. Uh, but he's also flighty and he can't focus and fix on, on one thing. And um, all of these character flaws in Tony Stark. Laundry list, you might say. The, yeah, personal defects. Um, Natasha Romanoff, for all of her abilities to blend in with uh, humanity, and, you know, she's a spy and she's extremely good at that sort of stuff, totally removed from the general populace. Mm. She's so specialised. I mean, really, if you want to look at it um, hard, David's weakness, I mean, his physical weakness is water, but um, the bigger challenge he f has to overcome in this is uncertainty. Um, by, the, by the end, even as he's walking away from Elijah, disgusted and appalled at himself, he has a shaky certainty as to what he's supposed to do here. Also, I was wondering if, uh, you know, the, um, the, the little title card bits at the end of, you know, David told people about uh, told the, the authorities about uh, uh, Elijah and his enormous room full of evidence and the uh, authorities immediately came and arrested him and he went to a mental institution for the criminally insane and supremely dangerous Arkham if you will um, I wondered if that was like an afterthought well you know they showed it to test audiences and audiences was like go to the cops and they were like right how do we cheaply film those scenes oh we just have a card we'll just pause it there and just say you know We'll we'll explain that because if you like consider it in in context of the rest of the film, um, it doesn't really fit with everything else we've seen. The way it the way that scene is set up is like you know now we finally know who we are and this fight is going to go on and on and on. To which end, I'd I'd immediately encourage David go to the authorities on this one. This is their fight, not yours. But that's the point. David is real. David yeah. is not a comic book hero. At the end of the day, a comic book hero at that point would probably pick Elijah up and throw him out of a window or something like that. Which, given his <laughs> physical disadvantages, would probably shatter would him shatter. to pieces. But. <laughs> that you know, in this world, that would result in David going to prison for the rest of his natural-born life. So that's not going to happen. I could actually imagine an angry John McClane doing that. <laughs> actually, the point where he's um, uh, like strangling the uh, the orange-suited guy in the bedroom, 
Um, it, it did feel like uh, McLean versus that big guy in Die Hard 3. You got a motherfucker called Lurch. I'm going to fucking kill you. I'm going to fucking eat you. Um, and speaking of Die Hard, there were many, many times when I was expecting Elijah to go, That's what I got damn yelling. I know what I'm doing. Not even God knows what you're doing. But, I mean, the, the two films could not be any more different in terms of tone. Aside from the fact that Willis is depressed and sad in both of them. Anyway, um, we've got to talk about Spencer Treat Clark as Joseph Dunn, don't we? It's, He's all right. it's Lucius from Gladiator. He's a sweet kid. He doesn't have much to do. He's actually annoying many times. Puts his father in mortal danger several times. Seems to have a weird kind of like. He's understandably very worried about his parents' situation and is frantically trying to uh, um, keep things together. Mm. But the scene with the gun. Jesus Christ. The the beginning of that scene um I found very jarring. Um but the the way it closes out I actually thought was pretty effective. Yeah, and just everyone crumples. One thing that I would say uh Spencer Treat Clark does put across extremely well and this would be a tough thing for any child to to present um is the way Joseph represses his feelings. Um, and that's another thing that makes me think that this this separation, this pulling apart of the marriage, has not been a hot, feisty um, fight. It's been a closing down and a shutting off and a yeah. pulling away. Because every time Joseph seems to feel anything strongly, he clamps down on it and his voice goes very, very quiet. Um, and I really get the impression that he's been... Uh, discouraged from expressing much in the way of emotion. Um, it's pretty obvious that his mother is unhappy with the idea of him expressing any emotion violently, which is understandable, but he's never been taught how to adequately allow those feelings out in a way that that doesn't hurt anybody, that, that doesn't cause any violence. Um, and, and his solution is just to, to keep it all hidden inside, which if that's exactly what his father's done, and if as a result of that, that's exactly what his mother's done, then of course that's what he's going to do. But like I said, that's a tough thing for a kid to portray, and he did it very well. Mm. Um, what colour use did you notice in this one, since obviously red in the sixth sense was a huge deal? It was, yeah. I mean, the first thing that struck me, I mean, you pointed out the whole um, Elijah is presented in purple a lot. It's not just purple. The way I noted it, everything to do with Elijah is on a spectrum of blue. And uh, it's like he himself seems to be clothed in purple. He's got this sort of purple turtleneck. The lining of his coat is purple. When he's a kid, he's wearing purple. Um, But then... There's sort of different shades of like he's one time he's wearing a blue suit and then there's blue uh, railings, but like a, a bridge behind him uh, at one point. And it just seems like um, where he's influenced, his fingerprints are there. So when he goes to see um, Audrey at the hospital, she's got sort of blue flowers on her red dress. So it's almost like he's smeared across there. Um, 
and uh, the you know it's in it's in connection with um, uh, obviously her husband. You, you know his 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 cane is uh, is also blue. If you look at it, uh, it's it's glass and translucent, but it's blue. And there, so basically, whenever you see the color blue on screen, almost always it's something to do with him. And the first time we see David, well, he's sitting on a train which um, Elijah has set up to crash. The woman who sits down is wearing a very vibrant, uh, sort of a purplish indigo blue, but a pale purplish indigo. So it's not this the same dark color um, top. And that's yeah, that's the first instance of it. You know, he he's coming at that point. Um, and you noticed red. Yeah, there are. Um, it's nowhere near as prominent as it was in the Sixth Sense, but red shows up whenever there is challenge. Um, when Elijah is resisting going outside and doesn't want to, his mother is wearing a, a various different shades of red outfit, and she's the one who is challenging him to go out. Um, when he's chasing after the guy in the camouflage jacket the stairs that lead down into the subway have red painted all down the side of them and that's basically it's it's an obstacle it's a challenge that he needs to overcome if he wants to keep pursuing this um david is wearing a red cap the first time he uses his skills to pick things up and then he wears it again later on and there are lots of um, little flashes of red and blue appearing together Mm. now one thing that um that m night Shyamalan said in uh, one of the extras was that none of the characters in this are black and white and he's absolutely right but there is red and blue and that is not an uncommon superhero color theme because they are very distinctive and opposing colors i know they're not directly opposed on the color wheel because i think it's red and green isn't it the, mm-hmm. the, the directly opposite ones but red and blue and orange yeah but red and blue are very distinct from each other um, it's very easy to tell where one stops and the other starts except where you have the purple which is all around elijah um, but there is no definite cultural connotation of one is good and one is bad they are just different from each other Mm. um and it's something that that just seems to pop up to to kind of almost get you to be aware that there are Mm. opposing ideals going on in this scene and something that you should be aware of. It was it was a detail that he didn't follow up on properly. He there was there's definite um, adherence to the blue spectrum for Elijah. Mm. David should have been red. Basically, yes. every time he stepped towards what he was supposed to be doing, that poncho he's wearing should have been red, yeah. dark red, to make it look different to what Superman's cape was at the time. He even in says heads. his favorite color is rust. Dark go. red. So it should have been a dark red. And, um, you know, from behind, he should actually have looked a little bit Supermanish because at the time, Superman Returns was five years off. The last mm. Superman movie was Superman 4. Yeah. Um, and you want to give it that superhero feel. Mm. Darkish, green, kind of just looks the same drab, horrible, shitty life he's surrounded himself in. That's exactly it's, it, though. The the green is the is domesticity. Yeah. There's, a, there's a blend of green and a, a kind of a soft orange that turns up anywhere that um, that home 
is signified and um, it's in the scene where he and Audrey have got back together again. The kitchen is green, the curtains are green and orange, Joseph is wearing a green and orange t-shirt, there's green and orange on the carton on the table, it's everywhere. But that's the thing, it being everywhere makes him becoming a hero and sort of subsuming himself in this green. It's not an exceptional colour. Exactly. The fact that his his um, security guard cape at the end is still this really dark green mm. with security on it in orange. His ordinary... Is, no, I get it, yeah, but it's an undynamic colour shift. Exactly, yeah. He should have been at that point shifting towards wearing red as he is becoming his true self, his hero self. But yeah, you know, I, I I get it. I just I, I feel like that that could have been again the the village is another fantastic use of color with the, the bad color, and uh, that's the thing that Lyra capitalized on immediately. Obvious one though. That's the problem. It kind of bludgeons you over the head with it. Yeah, I keep mentioning it, but that's just so that like it's a, it's it's false though. The whole point is so that when you finally go, oh my god, it's like it's meaningless. It doesn't really actually mean much of anything yeah when you watch it next time just look out for the blues and just uh, ask yourself um, how much influence Elijah has had over this scenario this whole film feels like it was a very deliberate step forward in legitimizing uh, comic books in terms of adult entertainment ultimately it followed years after the Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen made their statements in graphic novel form uh, and it was still years before Watchmen and The Dark Knight Returns got made into films uh, and keep getting made into films. But yeah, like I said, it came at the exact right time when people were starting to go, comic books, hmm, okay. I have said before, and I will say again, all comic books really needed to finally hit the cinema was for effects to be able to manage an Iron Man, Mm. you know, a Spider-Man. Uh, you know, they'd have done a Spider-Man film in the 1980s if they could have done a Spider-Man film, but they, their, their TV versions, The Dragon's Challenge, etc., look like ass. They look like a guy in a Spider-Man suit scaling a building on a cable. Mm. It's not the same thing at all as Raimi's Spider-Man. Mm. But comic books weren't the uh, the storytelling medium for the masses anymore. Mm. Mm. Films had had taken over. Yeah, if you look at the statistics at the beginning in the first frame of the uh, film, were like you know, six hundred and twenty million comic books are sold every year. <laughs> and they used to be, not anymore. Not anymore. And I, th- I think honestly, film is being ever so slightly edged out by TV right now. Hmm. Well, possibly because of um, Netflix is uh, revitalizing the way that you can actually binge watch shows, and because of the. Partially, it's because films are there and gone. Mm. And the the ones that maintain are the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the the ones that just keep going and, and have the... Uh, and, and the other ones that seem to be following suit, like the X-Men have certainly got a kind of a... Uh, and DC, a way of speculating on what's going to come next in this grand continuity. Mm. But TV shows like Game of Thrones are where it's at because people get together on the Twitter water cooler every friggin' day of the week mm-hmm. to talk about your show and it reaches peak activity on the day when your new episode comes out. Mm-hmm. And if Game of Thrones wasn't just 10 episodes a year, yeah, I agree actually that TV has kind of edged it out, but it's a new form. It's more it's yes. TV on demand as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. And there's it's not just the um the the whole water cooler thing either. There's a, a capacity for diversity in TV at the moment which film does not have mm. because you have to be able to appeal to the people who can give you 100 million dollars. Yeah to be able to put a film together and get it out there and get it seen by a a reasonable percentage of the masses. You can still make...
like a little indie movie that's going to be seen by a handful of people and ignored by everyone else, mm. but for something to be broadly appealing with a, a, a classic mythical story element to it that's really going to get its hook into the most people possible, TV just has an accessibility to it. Mm. And it's got the potential for the diversity of stories, the diversity of creators that film is closed to. Mm. And, and significantly, that's not going to change. If there's going to be a superhero story of the kind presented in Unbreakable, its best destination would be a Netflix series. Yeah. Absolutely. And you know what you, you were saying the other day about the um, the lack of, um, not just the lack of female directors in film, but very specifically the lack of visible female directors in film. They're there, but nobody talks about them. They are not household names. You look at the the um, the women who are working in TV, it's much, it's much more. bigger. It's, yeah. it's still not a 50-50 split, but it's much bigger. Oh, I also want to give a shout out to Bruce Willis because I, I, I basically said last week that uh, no one wants to see this grumpy Homer Simpson guy turning up and basically phoning in his performances because he's not hungry anymore. He has done, as far as I can tell, three, and let me know if there's any more than this, fine performances uh, since The Sixth Sense. Sin City, the first one, uh, as uh, Hartigan, is... He's committed to it, and you can tell. The time I think it was described as a I, I hate Bruce Willis film because basically he has the fuck kicked out of him for most of his role in the film. He's Nick got Nick Stahl probably gets it worse. Yeah, <laughs> he ripped his yellow dick off um, twice. <clears throat> <laughs> Will we do a Sin City? I don't know. I was so utterly depressed by the second one. Yeah, uh, but We'd yeah, say mean things about Frank Miller, and people would not like us. What? We do that every time we mention Frank Miller. Good point. Yeah. Okay, so Bruce Willis in Sin City, good. Uh, Bruce Willis in Looper. I think the second time you watch Looper, there's some questions. Maybe people who watch Looper the first time and, and, and were just like, well, wait a second, like the whole thing doesn't make any sense at all. But the actual performance from Bruce Willis is pretty damn good. And the performance from uh, uh, Joe Gordon-Levitt as Bruce Willis is also pretty damn good. Maybe if you went back in time and watched Looper as your older self, it would make more sense. No. Okay. Still violates all kinds of... even even Anything that would seem to make sense about time travel. Mm. The best Terminator film since Terminator 2. Um... Uh, but his best performance is actually something where, again, he plays against type. Do you know what it is? I don't, because when you say type and Bruce Willis, I think stoic, and I have never seen him play anything other than stoic, apart from when he loses it a little bit in Pulp Fiction. No, he's stoic in this, um, but it's a uh, uh, a light comedy drama. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Uh, Death Becomes Her. No, no, since The Sixth Sense. Death oh, Becomes sorry. Her was before, was before that. before, yeah. Ah, hmm. uh, no, you're not talking about... Um Die Hard 5. No, he was looking for a Boy Scout. You've completely forgotten this film. Moonrise Kingdom by Wes Anderson. Oh my God! No, I haven't completely forgotten the film, but i completely forgotten that Bruce Willis was in it. Because... Because he's playing he, against time. Because he doesn't make it all about him. Yeah. He plays, uh, understated, avuncular sheriff. Mm. And uh, it's it's an excellent film. I really recommend people watch it. 
Someone pointed out that, uh, that Bruce Willis's wound at the beginning of The Sixth Sense, one of the things that allows us to overlook it and go, ah, he's definitely alive, that they, uh, they're, like, and not even really question it when it says one year later, is because he's played John McClane so much, he's been shot so many times, it's like he's Jack Slater and he's just been shot and it's like, wait it's a minute, a flesh wound. It's a flesh wound. <laughs> That's not, I don't even have to dress that thing. Um, so that allows us to, to forget that he is a mortal man who can be hurt as can Bruce Willis and that's maybe something he should remind us of more just the idea like he's been in these films like in The Heart's War and Tears of the Sun and The Siege just like grim films that don't really let us in to who Bruce Willis is well that's I mean that's one of the strengths of, of the character in Unbreakable the fact that he is Unbreakable and clap and leave is is what makes you see his vulnerabilities all the more clearly. Mm. You know his his love for Audrey is what motivated him to lie about an injury that would cause him to have to give up his entire career, mm. uh, which has then caused him to spend the rest of his life questioning whether that was the right decision. Because there's a big difference between actually having a career-ending injury and coming to terms with that and living every day with the knowledge that this was your choice. Hmm. At the end of the film where um, David and Elijah, both biblical names, by the way, are set as superhero and supervillain, he is actually, because his the crucible of his coming out is in a domestic setting. It's not a, a, he's not fighting aliens in a city street. He's not solving. Uh, um, he's not stopping a supervillain from destroying a city because the destruction's already happened, Watchmen style. It is right and proper that he's shrouded in the green of domesticity because he's an understated hero with metahuman abilities rather than a quote unquote superhero. There's a connotation to the word super in superhero or the, the fragment of super and superhero, which suggests a certain type of behavior. And from the way David behaves in this, he's going to continue in an understated way, trying to make people's lives better, trying to protect them from harm. And in this, he succeeds to some degree, and he fails. Mm. He doesn't get to save the wife. She's yeah. dead, tied to a radiator, and just thumps to the ground after he unties her. It's a, a bittersweet, somber semi-success the children survive that's it also it's such an unpleasant scenario i can see why this didn't make that much money you know it's like i got kids here it's a pg-13 but like that that's a nightmare for any family and it's done in such a far removed distant way that you know their suffering is we get flashes of it, mm. but we never really see any of their faces. No. But again, I think in part that's to outline... It's anonymous, the... horrifying domestic crime. Yeah. Uh, but t here's the thing. It's domestic crime, but tied up with this notion of a crazed serial killer who just sort of turns up at your home and goes, I like this house. This is the serial killer that TV shows that focus on a serial killer of the week want you to believe are everywhere mm. and that will come into your home and fuck you up. Well, it's not, it's not specifically a domestic crime. It takes place in a domestic setting. Yes. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think the, the point there is to outline what the limits of David's abilities are. He can't save everyone. and it's Certainly a, not if they got a pool. Well, indeed. Um, there's a... <laughs> uh, it's quite poignant, I think, when he goes into the house, looks down the cellar to where the father's fallen down the stairs, mm. 
and just closes the door because there's nothing he can do about that. Um, and ultimately, that's why he walks away from Elijah at the end and reports it to the authorities there's because there's so nothing he, can do, he yeah. can do. That's what I mean about, about understanding. He's not overshooting done. his boundaries, and he's yeah. already he's, he's, he's coming at this from a re- the the point of view of a relatively meek man. Mm. Well, this is he's the, he's the polar opposite of the Punisher. Yeah, the Punisher is angry and furious and taking it out on absolutely everybody, and that's not David. That's not who he is. He's not a violent person. He has spent his life dedicating himself to being not a violent person because that's not what Audrey would love. He's a sentinel, not Marvel's sentinel or the sentinels from the X-Men, but uh, someone who stands in between uh, the... the to protect the innocent. It seems like you know jingoistic to say, but to, to protect the innocent. But that's literally what he's doing in an understated way. It is a hero that is believable, and it is a hero that um, he's not super heroically inspiring. But there's something about the fact that any of us could really do roughly what he's doing, provided we can, you know, throttle a guy in a jumpsuit who's old, you know strong enough to murder a man seemingly with his bare hands mm. so yeah we, you know clothed in the green he is a domestic hero mm. but what you said about the the use of the term hero and the fact that in this they put it in inverted commas there are multiple examples of where the term hero is not really used they say supers or they say powers or they say metahumans or metahumans yeah they don't say hero because hero means something very specific it's not just a person who puts on spandex and goes out and beats people up there there is a um there is a moral baseline and backbone that we expect from heroes Mm. it makes it more interesting when they deviate from that but it kind of has to be there otherwise are they really heroes well that's the thing um if you don't have any powers and you have feel you still have a moral obligation to help people and you decide to do it by going the phoenix jones route that's the uh street bound vigilante that's entirely different from the fictionalized context whereby you are granted astonishing powers and rather than just selfishly using them for your own gain or not using them at all you go out to help people with them because it's the third and hardest option Mm. but the one which you want to be able to live with yourself with Mm. yeah and i really like the idea of this this set of abilities that make him unbreakable. It's one of the reasons that I find uh, the idea of Luke Cage's powers so appealing. Mm -hmm. That basically, the fact that nothing's going through you, but you don't necessarily have to do anything. You don't have to hit. You don't have to be uh, an aggressive person. That you can just stand there and say, you shall not pass, and nobody's getting through you. Mm -hmm. That is a defensive power if ever I saw one. Mm. And Cap's shield is kind of a a physical manifestation of that because obviously Steve can be knocked out of the way. He's not that Cap's shield is used so frequently as a weapon that that doesn't really count. No, that's true. But they do make a lot of... um, They do make a, a big deal of the idea of Tony's suit being meant to be a shield and it's being used as a sword. Mm. That idea of the conflict between the sword and the shield is quite a central one to... um, Specifically, Steve does what David... Tell him, Steve, David. Um, Steve does what David does 
but on a national level. Mm. As in, he stands between Hydra and America, yeah. or indeed the rest of the world. Mm. Yeah. And says, you shall not pass. Hmm. And says, no, you move. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Right, so that's Unbreakable. We will maybe do another Shyamalan film at some point. I'm not going to say which. Depends how we're feeling. None of them are fantastic. Some of them are downright feckin' terrible. But again, I hold out hope that at some point he can return to form. And I think it's going to require a level of humility and self-awareness if you succeed in doing this. No, I can can do self-awareness. I just can't do humility quite so much. (laughs) Okay, so hope you liked your show, Nick. And uh, folks, if you uh, want something of this caliber uh, about uh, one of your favorite movies, get in touch. Uh, There are multiple ways we can organize this. Uh, You can do it via the Patreon, uh, which if you just want to throw in a buck because you love our shows anyway, you can do that. And there's all kinds of bonus stuff. And it's making it, they're making it easier every month now to, uh, to actually access this stuff. And now with the tags, you can click on uh, specific things. If you want to, like, you know, if you're a newcomer to the uh, Patreon, you're going to go, what are these folks able to get to which they couldn't before? And now you can. Mm. Um, but also, if you, like I say, you want to retain a show, you can do it via PayPal. You can club together. There were very few takers for Voltron, it would appear. Everyone wanted us to do Voltron. The moment we said, open your wallets and say after me, do Voltron, suddenly everyone disappeared. I was really surprised, actually. I, I was thought, too. At, at ten bucks each, I thought they'd the easily be 15 The amount of people. love for Voltron I expected. But mm. then suddenly it all dried up. Not ten bucks worth of love Interesting. for Voltron, obviously. So mm. There mm. that is. We are, however, going to do Stranger Things off our own backs. Yes, you don't have to pay for that one. That is a great show. Prepare thyself, folks, by watching Stranger Things on Netflix. It is a great series. We'll be talking about that soon. We also want to talk Bojack Horseman. Now, the difficulty with that is it's a brilliant show, but we both know what we both think of it. We need someone to talk Bojack with. So if you loved Bojack Horseman and you could really talk about it for an hour, get in touch. Again, though, we will spend, say, the first 15 minutes sizzling it and, and talking about why you should watch BoJack Horseman, but the most of that show is going to be talking about it as of the end, last episode of season three. Mm. Jesus. I ate that show up. Uh, I think I started watching it when I, my, my arm first became um, damaged, and uh, I think I was done in a week or so of uh, all three seasons. I watched it almost to the end of season three and then went back and watched it all again with you. It's that good a show. It first off seems like a comedy, but comedy, while it is, is not its key strength. It's the drama, it's the pathos. Mm. Yeah. It's tragedy with comic elements. Yes. Okay, so. That was Unbreakable. Next week, what are we doing? Oh, yeah. Big Trouble in Little China. Nick's next film. (laughs) And after that, we will be covering the original Resident Evil. The game, not the shitty film. Or it's even shittier sequels. Okay. So that's us. Uh, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And... We never talked about James Newton Howard's score. 
It's great, but it ain't a patch on the sixth sense. And I think we could probably leave it on the uh, enigma sounding boom, 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 unbreakable theme. Because uh, there's, there's some, like, the best bit of music is actually at the end when uh, David realizes the depth to which Elijah would sink. But the, uh, the boom, 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 is like the bit that I think people will remember because they play it like three times. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's a great one, but it shows how on point he was with the sixth sense in that that is haunting and complex and just utterly captivating and elevated the film. Okay. So I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's, School's Out. out. scariest thing is to not know your place in this world to not know why you're here that's it's just an awful feeling I almost gave up hope there were so many times I questioned myself because all those people So many sacrifices just to find you. Great. Now that we know who you are, I know who I am. I'm not a mistake. It all makes sense. In a comic, you know how you can tell who the arch-villain's going to be? He's the exact opposite of the hero. And most times, they're friends like you and me. I should have known way back when. You know why, David? Because of the kids. <laughs>